0: React started as just a view layer. It was the V in MVC, but React has moved down the stack with Flux, Redux, GraphQL, and Relay all providing opinions for how React applications should structure their data flow. Jared Forsyth works at Khan Academy, which uses React on the front end. At Khan Academy, Jared has experimented with many different ways of handling data flow for a React application. And in today's episode, we not only discuss the conventional tools for React applications, but we also talk about ClojureScript, Reframe, and Omnext, which are solutions for React data handling, but are outside the world of raw JavaScript. Many fans of Software Engineering Daily are listening through the browser, whether that browser is on their mobile application or on their desktop. And if you are one of those people, the practical dev is where you should go to listen to Software Engineering Daily it uh, is a better browser experience. The Practical Dev has teamed up with us to create a place to read and listen about software engineering. Uh, check out our new site at dev.to/se daily. That's dev.to/se daily. You can listen to our episodes. You can read our content. That's really a great site. Jared Forsyth is a software engineer at Khan Academy. Jared, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, Jeff. Thanks. Today we are talking about managing application state in React applications. First, let's define what that even means. What is application state? So application
1: state is any data that you've got in your app that you need to keep track of and that you're going to change over time.
0: Okay, and when React first came out, React.js was just a view layer. It was the V in MVC. But despite the fact that React is only responsible for rendering views, it is fairly opinionated about how data flow works. So what are some of the strong opinions about Dataflow that React had even on day one when React was just a view layer?
1: So this is actually one of the things that first attracted me to React. When I was... I guess this was three years ago, and I was working on a large Angular code base. And one of the things that kept bogging me down is that the data, the state that I was trying to change, was distributed throughout the app, and various places, various parts of the code would change the state. And in order to understand, okay, where does this variable belong? How is it going to change over time? I'd have to read through hundreds of lines of code. And so React has this very strong opinion about data, where data comes from, and who gets to change it. And that is encapsulated in the difference between props and state. In a given React component, the props are data that it gets from its parent, and state is data that it is allowed to change itself. Okay,
0: great. So when React first came out, there were many developers who were using Backbone or Angular or Ember as their view layer, And they would try to fit React components among their Backbone components or their Angular components. What was the experience like for a developer that was trying to use these different view frameworks together? So,
1: and I I remember there were many libraries and blog posts of like, yeah, we're a Backbone shop and we have just React come in as the view layer. And the thing that everyone was talking about at that point was the speed that React is so much faster than doing our handlebars or so much faster than our Ember view layer or whatever it is. And that was kind of the draw where we don't have to re-architect our whole thing. We just get React in there and we get some free speed. And as I said, there were a variety of blog posts that I read where people had success with that. But over time, as people started to get to know React and realize that it has these opinions about state, it started to clash with the way that Amber, or Backbone, or Angular manages state.
0: Mm. So the strong opinions that React has about data, how does this affect what data we're allowed to modify from the front end and what data we're not allowed to modify?
1: So one of the things that React expects you to do is think about state. And think about it almost as the first thing that you do. When I start to write a React component I ask myself, what data is this going to need to render, right? What is all the data this needs to know about? And then what part of that is this component allowed to own and make mutations on? And what part of it should it not be allowed to own? And the important thing here is, in React, any given piece of state should only have one owner, should only have one component that's allowed to mutate it. Whereas in other MVC frameworks, state can kind of be mutated from wherever you want.
0: Okay. And you talked about the distinction between state and props. Could you define more about these two different types of data management, state and props, and what you use these two different types of data management for?
1: Yeah. So any data you have, your application state, it's going to be state somewhere. It's going to be on some components, state generally, if, if you're just using vanilla React. But the component who owns that state can then share it in a, in a read-only way with its children. And then the children receive that, that data as props. And so the, the child receives the data from the parent, but is not allowed to change it. Only the parent who owns the state is allowed to mutate it. But then the child might have some, some application state that doesn't need to be known by the parent or doesn't need to be known by any of its siblings. And so it should just encapsulate that state by itself and no one else needs to know about it.
0: Okay, great. And before we get to talking more in depth about the different ways of data management that React enjoys using, let's talk a little bit about the two-way data binding model. We've talked about this in several episodes before, but the two-way data binding model is kind of the way that other Past frameworks have looked at the world what about the two-way data binding model does not fit with how we look at the world through react
1: so react owes a lot of its mindset to the functional programming world where data is immutable as much as possible and two-way data binding is you know you have a declaration of data in some component and then that component or that data is used in say an input box and when you type into the input box your framework automatically synchronizes between the keystrokes that you're typing and the data that you referenced when you first created that input and that is so convenient for making forms you've got input boxes you have got check boxes with angular you just strap a couple of Extra characters on your HTML attributes, and you're good to go. This really breaks down when you have higher level state. It's not just your customer name that's attached to this text box. You have a customer object that has a name, and this customer object is going to be rendered in a variety of places. And basically, what two way data binding ends up turning into is spooky action at a distance, where You've handed out this data, but you don't know where the changes might be coming from, and you have to read through all the different places. And it also ends up having performance implications where the framework has to do all of this bookkeeping to figure out, okay, this object came from here, and it just changed in this way, so we'll have to do dirty checking to see whether the object is different, and it it ends up being less performant as well.
0: Okay, great. So that gives us an idea for why we want to do something differently with React. And before we get to the kind of solutions for data handling that React uses, like Flux and Redux and Reframe and Relay, let's really try to put a finer point on the problem. So what are the data flow problems that Flux was made to solve?
1: So if you imagine a React app, or even if you're familiar with HTML, it's a tree, right? There's the document, the body, various divs, and nodes inside them and it gets many layers deep and in the react model that is that is modeled by your react components and components have children and grandchildren etc so you're thinking about your react app as a tree and state needs to live somewhere and in order for the state to be shared via the the props model so passing down to children the state needs to be owned by the greatest common denominator, if you will, the greatest common parent of all of the components that might need to render, say, a profile name. And so on your page, you've got this little profile component that renders a profile image and the name and birth date. And maybe you have it in the sidebar, but then you also have it in the chat window, and you also have it next to a task. So these three different places, but they are very different spots in this component hierarchy. And so the state needs to live at the very top and get passed down through all of the intermediate children to these great-great-grandchildren, if you will. And the, the plumbing gets really tedious because you have to touch all of the intermediate components in order to pass that down.
0: Okay, so even though React began as just this view component, this the view layer of React, and you call this plain old React components, the view layer has shown its opinion of how data flow should work in the React paradigm. So kind of before we get to talking about Flux, talk a little bit more about how plain old React components pass state from the root component to other components?
1: So each React component has a render method. The render method contains what looks like HTML, and it you know you'll have divs, you'll have spans, and you'll have references to other components. So you have, say, the profile page component, one of its children, in the render method would be declared as left sidebar component and if our profile page owns the user object that has a profile image and a name and a birth date and the left sidebar component needs access to this user object in order to render something down in its tree then our profile page in the render method will pass a prop of this user object to the child component and that looks exactly the same as HTML attributes in HTML. So you've got user profile equals this.state.user profile.
0: Okay, got it. So it, we've done a ton of shows on Flux. So if listeners want to know more about it, they can listen to the archives. But from a high level, how does Flux suggest that we handle data in React applications?
1: So React had been around in public for about a year by the time that Flux came out. And people were starting to use React for larger and larger applications, and experimenting with using backbone models, which have this two-way data binding subscription idea, or using Ember and with React, and trying to solve these problems of, how do I avoid plumbing this data all the way down through the tree if I need to use it in two separate places? And Even before Flux came out, various people were trying to figure out, is there some way to get outside of the tree so that I don't have to spend so much time digging through it? And Flux, introduced by Facebook, has the idea of using a separate object that's not attached to the React tree to manage your state. So I guess it sounds kind of simple. If React state management isn't working for you, use something else, but Flux was designed in such a way that you can use some state in one React component and in an entirely separate React component, and they don't have to know about each other, but it still is in keeping with these functional ideas of immutability, of you call a pure function to update the state. So it's very different from the Backbone model or the Ember model, but it's similar in the way that React is not managing the state itself. There's something outside that knows more and that is better able to handle the state for you.
0: And so when it came out and people started talking a lot about Flux, there were a bunch of Flux implementations. Why so many. were there so Yeah, there were so many. Why were there so many? Why wasn't there one Flux implementation to rule them all?
1: Well, when Facebook announced this, pretty much all they gave to the community was a PowerPoint presentation. There were a couple of diagrams, a couple of blog posts. It
0: is pretty brilliant leverage of the open source community.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure Facebook had some internal implementations that they weren't ready or prepared to open source that were very tied into whatever they were doing. But they, right. they had discovered this overall pattern that they probably implemented a, a dozen different places and said, maybe this is what we want. Go for it. And then there was just this explosion of Flux or Flux-inspired or Fluxy libraries.
0: You know, it it really reminds me of kind of the early Hadoop era where Google was just publishing white papers about their internal technology that was tightly coupled to their stuff. Yeah. And then people would just go out and (laughs) and
1: implement it. Right, yeah. (laughs) And so it was interesting because there was the way that Flux was described in the blog post. And there were some, there were some fairly specific implementation details along with the high-level ideas. And so there was kind of one family of Flux implementations that were fairly based around both the high-level design and the implementation details. But then there were many others that said, okay, I like this idea, but what if we did this? Or what if we did this? And mm-hmm. it was interesting to see them pop up And the very early adopters would kind of flock from one to the other of like, oh, this is cool. Wait, maybe this is better.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And so eventually the predominant Flux framework came out, which was Redux, basically. It became the most popular Flux implementation. What were the big breakthroughs that Redux made over other Flux implementations?
1: Well, Redux was very inspired by a language that compiles to JS called Elm, and Redux very much broke away from a lot of the implementation details that were described in the in the initial Flux blog posts. In the initial Flux, you had multiple stores, you had a dispatcher that made sure that stores don't step on each other's toes, you had a variety of bookkeeping things and constants for making sure that the data flows in the right direction, and... Redux was fascinating in that it, it really carved away a lot of that and said, what is the core of what we need to do? We need to have state, we need to change it over time, and we need to do that in a very clean and understandable way. And so in Redux, there's only one store, and you can, you can get rid of half of the classes described in the, in the original Flux design documents.
0: Great. Yeah. So, and we've also mentioned that Redux helps with testing. Can you explain this in more detail? Because I think this can sort of articulate some of the advantages of Redux.
1: Yeah. So w- one of the funny things about all of these different libraries, in many cases, if you decided to kind of reduce them to mathematics, you'd find them all end up being the same equation. But the differences are what are the best practices associated with this library? What are the things that this library makes it much easier to do? And what are the things that it discourages you from doing? In Flux, the best practice was to have a store that is a class. And the mutator methods are functions on the class, and they imperatively mutate the state. In Redux, the store is a bare object, just a plain old JavaScript object, And the way to mutate it is to have pure functions that don't live inside of a class, they just are declared in a module somewhere, and they take your state object and a description of how to mutate it, and they return a completely new state object, leaving the previous one unchanged. And that is what we call a pure function, something that doesn't mutate anything outside. It doesn't have any visible side effects. The only thing that you can see is what it returns. It's
0: like an append-only version of history.
1: Exactly. And because you have these pure functions, it's much easier to test because you can have your initial test data run a dozen of these functions on it in succession, and you'll see, okay, what happens after all of these happen in order? Or you can run the dozen functions each only with the initial test data and they don't they don't step on each other's toes.
0: Right. Okay. So Redux does require you to touch three different files in order to create a new action. Can you explain why this is necessary and maybe is is there a way that this might get simpler in the future?
1: So this comes down to the question of boilerplate and to be clear, Flux has more boilerplate <laughs> and this is one of the things I think about when thinking about Ember. Ember has very strong conventions about how files should be named, where they should be placed, how you organize your components. And for people just getting into it, it can feel like a lot of, why do we have this convention? Wouldn't it be easier for them to all just be in the same folder? Why do I have to name the files a specific thing? But where that pays dividends is three months down the road when someone comes in and is is looking at your project and wants to know where to start. Yeah. So you're incrementally paying for maintainability down the road. And that Mm. is what happens with the Redux conventions, where, yes, best practice Redux is to have three separate files and each contains a part of the action. And so it can feel like a pain when you're like, I just want to add a new action. But the decision made with Redux is based on the idea that you are going to be reading the code a lot more often than you're going to be writing it. And specifically, the actions, you won't add, the ratio of actions added to other code changed is going to be fairly low. And so we're okay with having to change three different files when we just want to add a new action, because when the next person comes in and wants to know, how does state change over time? What is the one file I can look at that contains all of the mutation code. It's all just right there in one file. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, so talking about the transition from Flux to Redux, when people kind of started saying, oh, Redux is the way that we want to go, at Khan Academy, you eventually migrated to Redux. Can you talk about that migration from Flux to Redux?
1: So the way we have it currently, all new code, all new projects use Redux. But that doesn't mean we don't have any flux left over. It also, incidentally, doesn't mean we don't have any backbone left over, although that's almost out of the code base. (laughs) Because you're on a large project, there's some amount of desire to to shave the yak and go in and say, this new technology is unequivocally better and everything will be so much cleaner. And when I look at the old technology, I want to puke. So I will just fix it all. But at the end of the day, it doesn't help. In our case, it doesn't help students learn better. And so with us, our transition to Redux happened via educating our engineers and having a variety of internal talks about, this is a good example of Redux. This is what we want to use going forward. This is the similarities to Flux, and this is how you can think about Redux. So the transition is easier. And in a variety of places where Flux was used in, in a fairly small contained environment, we'd just transitioned that over. So that we could more easily extend it in the future. And the education part of it was fairly simple because the underlying principles are the same. And it's just, it's mostly kind of the boilerplate that changes if you were doing flux in quote unquote the right way to begin with.
0: Mm-hmm. That sounds like a really great strategy for migration, both how you prioritized it, like kind of this doesn't really help our end users very much to go from framework A to framework B. And therefore, we're just going to kind of have a lazy eventual consistency <laughs> sort, of, sort of strategy. Pretty interesting. So, okay, you've said that there are some s- kinds of state mutation that are still hard to represent using Redux. What are those kinds of state mutation?
1: So, Redux, I said before that it's a very small core. It kind of took flux and hacked away bits that, weren't necessarily relevant to the core idea. So Redux itself, I think Dan Abramov once tweeted that you can re-implement Redux in hundred lines if you take out the comments. <laughs> and it's, it's a paradigm more than anything where it talks about pure functions and it talks about an, an immutable state history and all this stuff. And so because of the small core, there, there are a variety of things that are still kind of up in the air. Redux is not the the end state, but it has the possibility to become the end state because it doesn't have many opinions that are extraneous to its core mission, if you will. By that, I mean Redux allows you to use various plugins, various wrapper functions or decorators. And because of that, the state management tool of the future might well be Redux plus these five plugins that we found are the right way to do it.
0: Mm, okay, I see, I see what you're saying.
1: So some things like, how do I manage, if I have a state machine where A goes to B and B goes to C, but B should never go to D, and D can only be gotten to from F, there are complex interactions that we need to be able to model that Redux doesn't have an answer for, but it's okay because you can answer that in... A way that's incremental
0: yeah okay I understand so it's it's almost like a very low-level primitive so it just doesn't really have the robust abstractions that might otherwise be built on top of it
1: yeah and it's it's very much following kind of the arc of flux where flux was released as a design document and then there was all this experimentation and then Redux rose as the champion in in large part due to great documentation and really cool dev tools and really excellent open source community that that formed around it.
0: Okay. So let's talk about Reframe, because this is something we haven't talked about on Software Engineering Daily at all. And you talked about it in your ReactJS Conf talk. So Reframe is this closure script library very similar to Redux. And it it's it's so funny because like six or seven or eight months ago, I think my, my little brother, who is always on the cutting edge of React stuff, he's telling me about Ohm and Na- Ohm Next and all this other stuff. Or I, I don't know if o- Ohm Next was around back then, but Ohm was. And I was like, okay, I don't know what this is. I don't care about it. But then, of course, eight months later, I see you talking about it. So what what is Reframe? What does this thing do and what does it do differently than Redux?
1: So Reframe is almost like the sister library to Redux. It's the ClojureScript concurrent evolution because Reframe was actually started a little bit before Redux. They're both inspired by Elm, which is this functional programming language that compiles to JavaScript, is inspired by Haskell. So Reframe, many of the things that I love about Reframe are just because it's in ClojureScript. Um... So ClojureScript is much easier to use immutable data. It's much easier to think in this functional pattern. But the real thing that it has over Redux is the idea of subscriptions. And we haven't talked much about how Redux actually does the plumbing, but reframe's subscriptions allow you to memoize or save computation so that you aren't redoing it later if the sources of data haven't changed.
0: Okay, give an example of that. How are subscriptions useful?
1: So let's take the the to-do MVC example, right? The canonical example for evaluating frameworks. And the state that you have, say it's a to-do list, and you also have a filter button where you can say show only the completed or show... Only the uncompleted or show all of them. And these two things are parts of your global state. They need to be used in multiple places, so it doesn't make sense for them to just be owned by a single component. They should be owned by Redux or Reframe. And Reframe subscriptions allow you to give names to derived data. I know that I have a to do list and I have a filter and they're on my state, but I want to be able to talk about something called a filtered to-do list. And that is produced by taking the current filter and taking the to-do list and doing some computation over it that might be expensive. And anytime I ask for the filtered to-do list, if the to-do list and the current filter haven't changed, don't bother refiltering because you, you can just remember what the last state of that was. And that's where reframe subscriptions save you time and performance where redux again without any plugins attached to it doesn't do that for you.
0: Okay, so we've been talking about the more front facing layer of this react data flow stack and we'll come back to talking about the closure script way of doing things, but let's let's talk a bit about relay which updates state in a way that is similar to redux but performs the actual data fetching by interacting with a GraphQL server. And as I understand, GraphQL is a representation of my entire data model in JSON. And if listeners are curious about GraphQL, we've done some shows about that. We've also done a show about Falcor recently. But let's talk a little bit about this in practice. Does Relay define how I update the data model on the server? Does it define how I'm I'm actually writing?
1: So... Relay does a lot. It is kind of in a, in a class by itself where Relay wants to be able to get you these incredible optimizations where it, it knows about mutations on the server, it knows about mutations on the client, it's able to synchronize those with minimal, the minimal amount of data necessary to pass to the server and back. And because it needs to know about these things, it does require you to specify your mutations on the server and on the client. So when you're updating the database, you need to tell Relay so that it knows.
0: Okay, so how does an update work both on the client and the server? Can you just give like a high high level end to end? So
1: on the server, you have your database and your, your API endpoints. Well, with Relay, there's only, you don't actually have API endpoints because Relay handles that for you. That's one of the nice things about it but on the server you have mutations that you want to do, like adding a to-do list item. And you define that on the server with a a mutation that you register with Relay and you say, when the client wants to add a to-do list, this is how you change the server-side knowledge of state. So whether it's just kind of an in-memory update or a database mutation that you send off, And as a result of adding a to-do list, these are the other parts of state that might change. Like if you have some denormalized data where you're also, you have a database field that is the total number of to-do items in addition to the list of to-do items. On the server, you specify in your mutation that when somebody adds a to-do list item, this other piece of state might change. So you should better check that and send that back to the client, because that might have changed. Mm.
0: Okay, right. So it can really propagate all the changes. It can, Not only does it route data and negotiate requests, like complex, requ- or, well, requests, I guess it, it routes and simplifies requests that the client makes. And then it also can, if there's an update, it can say, well, here are the other things that are going to change as a result of that update. Yeah. Wow, okay. So, okay, so obviously there's a lot of benefits to using Relay and it sounds like there are also a lot of costs. Could you give an overview of the the pros and cons of using Relay in practice? So the way I
1: think about Relay is I think about Facebook and their very high level needs. They need high performance, they need to be able to connect to billions of clients across the world. In sometimes very data-restricted environments, they have lots and lots of engineers working on the same code base, and they need to make sure that there are strong guarantees that one engineer over here isn't going to break things by accidentally changing an API endpoint or you know changing a version. Mm-hmm. And so Relay is, is kind of the conclusion that they've come to for the best way to manage state at Facebook and they open sourced it and put a ton of effort into making it something that the open source community could also use and the benefits that you're going to get from relay i think will will only bear fruit in the middle to long term if you're making a large project that fits the constraints of relay and you expect to have 2 dozen people on it you expect to be maintaining it for more than a year more than 2 years then Six months from now, you'll you will be patting yourself on the back that you chose Relay, um, because it saves you so much time. And if it's a smaller project, if it's a shorter term project, three months from now, you might be hating yourself because <laughs> you know you haven't even written the first page yet.
0: So uh, you know, I did an interview about Falcor recently, and it was very interesting. The discussion that we had about Falcor versus GraphQL and the Facebook stack and how these two technologies basically evolved totally independently of another, but with very similar characteristics for how they work. And what I thought was interesting was that my impression is that Falcor is, it embodies the data request needs that netflix has Uh which are very different than the data request needs that facebook has and it's and they're like they look very similar to you know without you know looking at it with scrutiny but when you look closely you're like oh it would totally make sense why facebook would develop graphql and relay this way and why netflix would develop falcor this way would you agree with that
1: yeah i definitely agree relay and falcor look like two different specific, I guess, application-specific implementations of, of the same underlying idea. And my prediction is that within the next little bit, we'll figure out what that underlying idea is that isn't so specifically developed towards Facebook or Netflix needs mm. that doesn't do as much for you, but that you can build on to meet your needs without adding so many requirements that you get bogged uh. down.
0: Very interesting. So maybe the core idea of, look, I'm a frontend developer. I need this data. I don't want to know. I don't want to have to know how to get this data. I just want to be able to access the entire object graph of everything in my company through a single JSON model. And I don't want to have to have any other requirements beyond that. Maybe that's the core idea that GraphQL and Falcor are both going for.
1: It might be. And I know that there are some very smart people working on Relay that are very invested in open source, and they, they're actively pursuing this idea of how can we make this simpler, more adaptable, less uh, specific to our needs. And then on the other hand, there are people in the Redux community that look at Relay and say, oh, I like that part, but that other part I don't need at all, and are, are trying to develop plugins to Redux that will get them halfway there.
0: Okay, so I want to get into the weeds here near the end and talk some about Ohm Next, which is, you describe it as like Relay, but with ClojureScript. So this is really getting into the <laughs> specifics. It, uh, <laughs> now we, only ha- we literally only have the functional programming people listening, so we've got about 50 people tuning in at this point. <laughs> Tell me how Ohm Next avoids using a GraphQL server.
1: So next is developed by David Nolan, who works for Cognitect, which is the kind of parent company for Clojure and ClojureScript, and also a database called Datomic. And Datomic has a lot of really cool things about it, but one of them is a query syntax that is similar in nature to GraphQL, where you can describe your data needs, and Datomic will just return... The data that you want and it can do joins behind the scenes and various things so ohm next is kind of relay for the datomic mindset one of the things that makes ohm next a little bit easier to adopt is you don't absolutely need to have a datomic database in order to use ohm next because the you can parse the pull syntax yourself and handle it on the client side if you want and it's a lot easier to customize.
0: Okay, and one of the benefits of OM Next that you talk about is that if I'm making a request, I can specify how dynamic the data that I'm fetching is within that query, and this can be really useful because if I'm querying data about a user status, like a status, that's something that might change pretty often. So I would want to specify in my query hey, uh, I need the, the freshest version of this data. But you can also specify data, like getting data that's very static. Like if you need to get a user's name, that's not going to change, you know? It's, it's rarely going to change. So how important is this idea of specifying the dynamism of the, the data that we're fetching? Like, Does this allow for significant savings relative to like Relay and GraphQL?
1: That's definitely the hope. Omnext is much less mature, if you will, or rather they've taken their time to experiment with different things, try and make sure they're getting things right. And it's a fairly small group of people that are that are working on Omnext right now. But definitely the flexibility to choose where you get your data from, the idea is that it would have performance benefits, it would have bandwidth benefits, and your users will like you because you won't use as much of their data. and I was talking before about how when you look at these different frameworks, many times they all boil down to the same mathematical function, if you will. And I see that a lot in Relay and Omnext, where Omnext happens to be more configurable. They've thought about these kind of custom queries, querying different data stores that might be more dynamic or less dynamic in Relay. You can technically do that, but you'll be writing several hundred lines of kind of boilerplatey code to get that to work for you. Whereas in Ohm Next, it's a first-class citizen.
0: I should ask here, why do people like ClojureScript so much? I
1: can I can tell you why. I like ClojureScript. I am a, a longtime JavaScript user, and I like to be on on the cutting edge of JavaScript using the latest stage zero Babel plugins, all this stuff. And at the back of my mind for, for several years, I've looked at Lisp. I, I took a class in Racket in college, which is a Lisp. And there's always been something vaguely appealing, but there were, there were too many things that I was like, uh, I wouldn't actually ever use that, or I wouldn't. That just is too foreign. And all those parentheses, are you serious? <laughs> but, but ClojureScript, in a similar way that React makes you think differently about your state, ClosureScript does that again, but ten times as much, and it is a very different feel. I feel like I have a better idea of what my application is doing because in ClosureScript I'm able to specify it more clearly, and using the primitive functions, working on this immutable data, I'm able to describe in a much more natural way than than in JavaScript how I want state to change.
0: Mm. Okay, so let's let's begin to conclude. I want to come back to this idea of app state. You've suggested that developers need to decide on some conventions for how to manage their app state. So what does this mean? Is a convention the same as a design pattern?
1: I think of conventions as the kinds of things you decide on after two months where you've know you you've got five people working on a project and maybe you, you haven't worked together before or you're at a new company, you're in a new technology, you're trying things out, you're trying out React. And two months in, you look at each other and, and look at the code that you've written and see, so here's this problem that we've run into and here are two ways to solve it, but this one actually looks a lot cleaner. And so let's, let's just decide, even though there are pros and cons, Doing it one way is so much better than doing it three ways. So we'll decide on doing this one way.
0: Mm. So what are some of the conventions for application state that you've decided on for yourself?
1: I really like Redux and the convention that Redux has for having immutable state and this kind of transaction log. And that is something that I that I've used for over a year now in, in the applications that I do, where mutations to state are pure functions that take in the old state, return a new state, and don't do any mutating.
0: Mm. So you've mentioned that these different ways of setting up a React data flow, there's a trade-off between the setup time and how awesome they end up being for your team. I, I think this is pretty interesting. So Is this going to get easier in the future where we won't have this trade-off, where we could just say, these are the conventions that are awesome, they're going to be awesome for the long term, and I can click a button and just have it?
1: I don't know. I think...
0: I mean, this is basically the Ruby on Rails question, I
1: guess. Right? I think there might be a future where we have a much better idea of the different levels of requirements that we're going to have over time and over kind of size of of your app and the complexity. And we'll have a system where it's really easy to transition, where when you're just starting out, this is the way to do it. And once you get to a certain size or certain complexity, adding on these few extra things will, will work seamlessly with what you've been doing so far. You'll have to do a little bit more boilerplate from now on, but it, it's worth it because you're at that size. And I can imagine a couple of stages where we add on new plugins and and new conventions to meet the growing size. Hmm.
0: How has the Khan Academy stack changed since you gave that talk at React.js Conf?
1: There's been a lot of discussion about what conventions we should have. We have several different JavaScript applications that are in different parts of the Khan Academy website, some of them user-facing, some of them are used by our content creators or our translators. And for the most part, they've been operating in in isolation. You have, oh, these three people, they know all about the translator dashboard and they've, they've been using Redux and loving it. These people over here, their project started on Flux and so they've kind of kept on going. And recently we've been having discussions about what opinions should we have about react state and about for one of the things, for example, is should we bias toward components that don't have any state of their own and they just take props? I'm a very big proponent of that because the fewer components you have that mutate state, the easier your life is going to be and the more reusable your components are going to be. And so we've, we've had discussions about that and maybe, talking as as an organization about what are the conventions we've found to be useful Mm.
0: okay well that's a great place to close off jared thanks for coming on the show this has been a great conversation you've really enlightened me on some of the confusions around react state management that i had thank
1: you so much it was a pleasure
0: thanks man and thanks for the reschedule i really appreciate that no sure thing okay all right talk to you soon